Please do take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 5 today as we continue in our studies through the gospel. Beginning today in Luke chapter 5 as we see the calling of Peter and Andrew, James, and John. We find that uh, reading today in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And uh, if you picked up an ESV, that is uh, beginning on page 860. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And before we read God's word, please join me in prayer. Let's pray. O glorious Lord, how we love your law. It is our meditation all the day, and your commandments make us wiser than our enemies, and it is ever with us. Give us more understanding than all our teachers, your testimonies our meditation, and we are able to understand more than the aged when we keep your precepts. O Lord, we pray that as we come now to your word, that you would keep back our feet from every evil way. You would help us to keep your word. We would not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught us that your word would be sweet to our taste, sweeter than honey to our mouths, and that through your precepts we would get understanding and learn to hate every false way. O Lord, would you do this work in the hearts and lives of your people, by your word and spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here now God's word as we find it. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. A number of years ago, the Christian uh, doctor, missionary, S.I. McMillan, uh, reported the story of uh, a very honest young woman who wanted to go to college. And as she was going through and filling out the application to her, to her college of choice, one of the questions on the application almost drove her to despair. It said, do you consider yourself a leader? Now, you know if you're applying to college what you should put in that box, but to her credit, uh, she wrote down no. She didn't consider herself a leader. And she sent in the application and she was sure that that was the end. She would be rejected. And weeks later, she received a letter from the school, and it read, Dear Applicant, a study of our application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 freshman leaders. Therefore, we're accepting you because we feel it is imperative they have at least one follower. <laughs> now, uh, being a follower is never a glamorous position to be in. We live, we move, we have our being in a world that prizes influence and authority. This is true a thousand times over, that the laborer longs to become the foreman. The private wishes that he were a sergeant, and the assistant pastor can't wait until he's the senior, until he becomes the senior, and maybe wishes he could be the assistant again once in a while. And then there are all those people who are searching for self-validation on social media, and you know how it goes. You have to gather people who are interested in you. 
People who want to know who you are, know what you're doing at, at all hours a day, even the most mundane of things, and those people who, who give you the thumbs up and they give you the like, well, they become known as your followers. And the people who have a very large following become known as the social media influencers, and there are now some people uh, doing some experiments to see just how much influence these social media influencers have, and it's quite staggering. But that's the enviable position, is to be the leader to be the influencer, to make a difference because others care about the direction you're going and everybody wants to be a leader and nobody wants to be led. And yet when Jesus calls his people, he calls them to follow. Before Christians were first called Christians at Antioch, they were known as followers of the way. What marked them out as different and unique in the Greco-Roman world was that they wanted to live by Jesus Christ's word and example. They wanted to follow him in the way that he lived and the things that he taught and the things that he loved and the places that he went. They were his followers. And true disciples are always followers of Jesus. That's what we're called to be. If you've been paying attention, Luke has been preparing us for this reality over the last chapter or so. This is now the, the third account in a string of accounts where people react to Jesus' teaching. We saw it first in Nazareth, and the reaction was that they wanted to be rid of Jesus, that Jesus came teaching and preaching, and they wanted to get rid of him, tried to put him to death. In Capernaum, they wanted him to stay right there with them forever, giving them exactly what they wanted and, and fulfilling all of their wildest dreams. And it's not until we get now to chapter 5 in a, a hearty group of sailors and fishermen that we find the true reaction that all disciples ought to have to Jesus Christ when he steps in and teaches. Verse 11, it says, When they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. That's the description of what it means to be a disciple. Disciples love what Jesus loves. They go where he calls. They die to themselves, and true disciples follow Jesus. Today, as we study God's word, I want us to look together at four aspects of what it means to be a follower of Christ, four duties of discipleship. We see the first one both uh, with Simon Peter and also with the crowds. And the first aspect uh, that we see about discipleship is that disciples open their ears. Disciples open their ears. By now, the scene is familiar. Jesus comes teaching and everybody wants to hear, and so the crowds begin to press in. They press in, it says, Luke tells us, to hear the word of God. You know, the thing about Jesus is that he was always teaching. Everywhere he went. So far in Luke, we've only seen Jesus teaching in the synagogues. But, but proclaiming God's truth to sinners wasn't something that he did just one day a week. It wasn't just something that he did when the people were gathered. He did it Sunday through Friday. He did it every day of the week. He did it where people gathered in homes. He did it uh, for these fishermen down where they are gathered by the shores. He did it uh, on the hills and in the valleys everywhere. He went to everyone he can. Jesus is always teaching. He told us at the end of that chapter that we just read, chapter 4, that was why he was sent. He was sent to preach good news. So this good news comes to people where they are, and it does not leave them a square inch of space that his teaching does not penetrate. Jesus is always teaching. The way that Luke paints the picture for us. Because if you read it too quickly, you almost get the impression that this is also serendipitous. It's all just, just one big coincidence. It's all just a matter of course. Jesus is teaching, and here come the crowds, and oh, look, there's a boat. The boat just so happens to belong to a guy named Simon, and Simon just so happens to be there by the shore, and just so happens to be willing to help Jesus get his message out. But if that's how you read it, you miss the point. Because the point is not that Jesus simply walks into situations that seem tailor-made for him, but the point is that he's going after Simon. The point is that he's invading his life. He's pursuing him. He's stepping into his life. He's stepping into his livelihood, and he is making demands of Simon. In the other Gospels, uh, the Lake of Gennesaret uh, is known as the Sea of Galilee. It's the same body of water, and Luke, writing to Gentiles, gives them a name that they would recognize, but now that you recognize it, you know that this was the body of water that anchored an awful lot of Jesus' ministry in the regions where he went about teaching and healing and, and performing miracles. 
and, and the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, was the prime fishing spot outside of the Mediterranean that the, the Jews could get to. That was within their own territory. And so this is where they all went. It was the hub that fed the multitudes of Galilee. And six days a week, you could find salty fishermen on its shores bringing in their catches. And then they'd be there in the mornings cleaning their nets because they were made of natural fibers, not like today, and they couldn't withstand rot. And so the nets every day, every morning had to be cleaned and they had to be laid out in the Mediterranean sun to dry or else they were rot and they would begin to break. And so you could find them every day getting ready to go out again the next night. And Jesus is there in the midst of all of this labor and all of this toil. We'd get a similar understanding of what Jesus is doing here. If, Jesus, if Luke rather had told us something like, uh, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus happened to be standing on the docks of Gloucester and the cod boats and the lobstermen were all coming in for the morning. That's the idea. This is a fishing town. This is in the middle of industry and Jesus takes the crowds there. Yeah, they're pressing in on him, but doesn't he get to direct them a little bit? And we almost want to say, what is Jesus doing there? Next to the Sea of Galilee. Down at the water, down where dirty men are coming in from a night of wasted labor. Down where Simon's tired hands are picking scraps of seaweed out of the linen nets. Down where Simon's preparing to go home and tell his wife that he was out again another night with no catch. And if there are many more of these, they'll have to find something else because it's simply not paying the bills. Well, Jesus leads the crowd in that direction, and then he begins to make demands. Where is Jesus when he makes the first request of Simon? He's already in his boat. Verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. He's invading Peter's life. And now he's asking this tired busy man to put his work on hold and help him to get the gospel out. And you see the crowds are not the point. Simon is the point. Because the Lord is pursuing him. We don't know what Jesus taught the crowds. We don't hear about their reaction. Luke doesn't tell us about a single conversion that happened on account of this sermon. But we know that Simon was there. And we know that he was in the boat. And we know that Simon, like every good disciple, was listening to Jesus. Because that's where discipleship happens. It happens as the Lord steps into where we are and he speaks the word of God and he makes demands. He makes requests and demands of us. Discipleship happens when our, our ears are open to listen and obey. And you need to know that. You also need to be prepared for the fact, realizing that when the Lord steps into your life and he begins to make demands, even small ones, you can bet that those small demands will be followed by much larger demands. The Lord is not content to have just a little bit of the lives of his disciples, but he wants all of it. In 1985, uh, a woman by the name of uh, Laura Numeroff contemplated uh, in her classic book, What Might Happen If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. And she said that if you give a mouse a cookie, the next thing you know, the mouse is going to want a glass of milk. He doesn't want to get a milk mustache, and so he'll ask you for a straw, and when he's done, he'll want to see his face in the bathroom mirror to make sure that there is no milk mustache. And when he looks in the mirror, that will remind him that his whiskers are getting too long, and so he'll want to trim, and then he'll want a broom to clean up after himself, and it'll make him all so tired that he'll just want to lay down and take a nap. But could you read a story first, please? The story will be so rousing and inspiring that he wants to draw a picture. And when he takes that picture to hang it on your refrigerator, he'll realize, I'm kind of thirsty. Could I have some milk, please? And while we're at it, how about a cookie? Now, that's a wonderful little children's story, but you need to realize that discipleship works exactly the same way. When disciples open their ears to the demands of Christ, they will find that they are always followed by new and greater demands. And so Simon, sitting in a boat, with Jesus just a few feet from shore, the sermon is over, Jesus pronounces the benediction, and then he turns and he says, why don't you row out to the deeps? Why don't you let down your nets for a catch? That might not mean a whole lot to you. Uh, but you get a sense when you look at his response in verse 5, what exactly Jesus is asking for. Master, he says, this is, uh, this is very reverential. Uh, Master, he says, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now, of course, 
Peter wasn't out there all night because that's when he liked to do his work. That was the only time you could do the work. If you were a fisherman uh, in Palestine, in Judea, the only time you could get any fish was when the sun had gone down and the water began to cool and the fish would rise to the surface. And they would come close to the shore and that was the best fishing place where you could go out and you could spread your nets and they didn't have very far that they could, they could swim to get away from your nets. And that was the best fishing spot, but now, not, not now, it was all over. Fishing was done for the day. And only a rank amateur would think of fishing from the middle of the lake in the middle of the day. Only a carpenter without sea legs would suggest such a foolish thing. Imagine you sitting in your office, working on your programming or whatever it is you do, and your pastor walks in and looks over your shoulder and says, that's okay, but maybe let's try it this other way. I think maybe it would be good if you did this other thing and you would be kind and you might be gracious and you might not want to offend me. But at a certain point you would say, look, I've been doing this for 25 years. I know what I'm doing. Why don't you go back to your studies and just leave the programming to me because you don't know what you're talking about. And Peter doesn't say that, but oh, he almost gets there. You can almost hear it bubbling up this exasperation in his voice. You can think about him contemplating the nets just beginning to dry out. You can think about him uh, thinking about what it will mean to now go back to the shore and load up all of those nets and get his men and take them out into the center of the, of the lake and, and stand in the middle of the baking sun and put all the nets out and row around and begin to gather hand over hand a couple hundred pounds of soaking wet, still empty nets. This is a big thing. One scholar says that from a human standpoint, Jesus' request is both insensitive and irrational. No fisherman would do such a foolish thing. But what do you notice about Simon? You notice that his ears are open. Master, we toiled all night, and we took nothing, but at your word I will. If you've got the NIV in front of you, it's wonderful here. Yet because you say so. That's what a disciple does. That's all the rationale that a disciple needs for obedience. And even while your flesh, even while the world is crying out against obedience, while they're trying to convince us that following Jesus is not comfortable, it's not convenient, it's not the sort of thing that you want to do, what a disciple does is they open their ears to hear the voice of Jesus. And your flesh tells you, do you know it will, what it will cost you to love your neighbors at yourself, as yourself? Do you know what kind of commitment that will take? What kind, of, uh, what kind of disruption that will be to your personal schedule? Your flesh tells you, can you really give to everybody who asks of you without expecting to receive in return? Is that kind of giving sustainable? Is it, is it even wise? Is it the sort of thing that a good steward would do with their time and their talents and their money? Would you even think about doing that? And the world says, can you believe what will happen to your kids if you discipline them that way? Are you going to listen to that? And a thousand times over, all the, all the day, can you imagine how strange the world will think you are if you submit your marriage and your sexuality and your family and your finances to the principles of Scripture? That's what the world is telling us. And yet the disciple says, oh Lord, at your word, I will. Because you say so, because discipleship begins with open ears. And Peter's, Peter's whole life of discipleship began uh, with this willingness to hear and obey the Lord. And, and in the wake of his obedience, we learned the second duty of discipleship. It is that disciples also bend their knees. Disciples open their ears, and disciples bend their knees. Now, presumably, Simon Peter had a few men working for him. And so they gathered together, and they rowed out into the lake to drop their nets, and as they began to pull, their eyes got wide. Suddenly, their muscles are straining against the biggest catch that they'd ever seen in their entire lives. It says that the nets began to break. It says that they filled both boats until they were overflowing, and the idea here is not that it's some little dinghy that you would, you would imagine that you put a couple pounds of trout in, and suddenly it's wobbling. No, they, they, uh, in 1986, there was a drought in the Middle East, and it lowered the level of the Sea of Galilee so low that there was exposed a hull from a fishing boat in the Sea of Galilee from the first century, the time of Christ. It was about the size of a school bus. 
It was seven and a half feet wide, and it was 27 feet long. And they raised it up, and you can go and see it if you want to go look in the museum where it's kept. It was a big boat. This was a lot of fish. They are amazed. This is really saying something. And at the worst time of the day, the most unlikely spot in the lake, their boats are overflowing. And it tells us that when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, a few things stand out about this miracle that Jesus has just worked. The first thing that you notice is this was not the first time that Simon had seen some miraculous thing from Jesus. Especially if chapters 4 and 5 are in chronological order, then we know that Simon was there in Capernaum for that whole wonderful day of ministry that Jesus had that we just read about last week. He saw exorcisms. He saw healings by a word of power. The Lord stayed in his house. He healed his mother-in-law from a fever that had her on the brink of death. And all he had to do was say a word. He's familiar with Jesus and what he does and the kind of authority that he has over the created world. This isn't his first time to see what Jesus can do. And we also notice that this was not a miracle that came at the behest of some weary fishermen who were wondering how they're going to fill their bellies and feed their bills. Nobody asked for this. Nobody came to Jesus saying, you know, we, we worked it out last night and, and we know that you can command all the fishes and all the seas and could, could you help us out here? This was unexpected. It wasn't, it wasn't asked for. It wasn't something they were going after. And you also notice that this is not a miracle with, we might call it moral implications. All the miracles have, have some moral implications because of who is performing them, but this isn't like the resurrection. Uh, this isn't like when Jesus would heal people and drive out demons in the synagogue on the Sabbath in full view of the religious leaders where he's telling them that the Lord of the Sabbath is here and he's proclaiming freedom. This isn't about that. It's not about teaching the disciples about sin and its consequences. This miracle is simply about showing them who he is. There's a beautiful parallel in John chapter 2. You read in verse 11, after the wedding at Cana of Galilee, when Jesus takes several hundred gallons of water and he, he turns it into casks of the best wine anybody had ever had. And it says in verse 11 there that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That's what he's doing on the lake with these men. That's what he did at Gennesaret, these fish in their boats, their, their hulls now uh, almost buried under the water under the weight of this catch that they're bringing. These fish become a window through which these men can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what this miracle is about. It's all about showing them who Jesus is. He is manifesting his glory, and that's what discipleship does. It brings us into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. It confronts us with the God who is able to do far more abundantly than you could ever ask or think. And when discipleship shows you Jesus in his glory, it will drive you to your knees in repentance. Now, we have in our kitchen uh, east-facing windows. And the wonderful thing is that when you're done with dinner and you clean up the kitchen and the dining area, and the sun has already set now in our, uh, our winter months in New England, kitchen looks pretty clean. And you wipe everything down and it looks pretty good. But the next morning when the sun begins to rise and that light floods the kitchen, you see a lot of things that you didn't notice the night before. And this is what's happening with Peter. The light of Jesus Christ and his glory is flooding into his life and he is repulsed by what he sees in his own life. He stands shamefaced before the Lord. Ashamed that the filth of his heart should be in the presence of the divine. Far better to fall on your face in a flopping pile of fish in the bottom of a boat than to think you can stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and be on par with him and look him in the eye. That's what happens in discipleship. It shows you your sin. Even when you're not looking for it, it shows you your sin because discipleship shows you Jesus. And it shows you his glory. And this is always the effect that discipleship has. Think of faithful men throughout Scripture. Think of faithful Abraham, who said to the Lord that he was nothing more than dust and ashes. Think of the prophet Isaiah, 
a young priest and just in the beginning of his ministry, and he was in the temple and the train of God's glory filled the temple and he cried out, woe is me. Think of righteous Job. And he says in Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself. That's the effect. My eye sees you, therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And I don't know how much and to what extent Simon realized the significance of what he was doing. I don't know if he would have realized exactly what this was that was coming over him, that he had to call him Lord. He switches from master earlier now to Lord, that he is, he is overwhelmed with his own sin and falls at Jesus' knees and begs that he would simply leave his presence. We don't know how much Peter knew at this time. But we do know that he did exactly what was required of him when he came face to face with Jesus. He recognized his sin. He bent his knees in humble repentance. Your friends, I hope that Simon is an encouragement to you today. He was not unfamiliar with Jesus. He had already opened his home. He had already shared his life. He had already seen something of his power. And yet, the more he saw of Jesus, the more he saw of his sin. And the closer he got to Christ, the more he saw of his uncleanness. And that means that the closer you get to Jesus, you're going to see the same. The more you see of him, the more you'll know the depths of your sin, not less. The more you see of his grace and salvation, the more you will know that it comes in the context of just how unable you are to save yourself. And it's hard. Sometimes this is an aspect of discipleship that is depressing. When you realize that you are much more depraved than you ever thought you were up to this moment, and it couldn't possibly get any worse. And three years from now, guess what? It gets worse because you see your sin more and more. Not necessarily because you're sinning more and more. Because the light of Christ's glory is shining more and more into the recesses and the corners and the hidden nooks and crannies of your life. It's exposing those dust bunnies of sin that you've been tempted to hide under the rug for so long, and now you can't avoid them because Christ is here. Discipleship puts you into contact with the light of Christ's glory, and it shows you your sin, and real disciples will bend their knees in repentance of the Lord. That's what discipleship looks like. Now that brings us to the third aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus' disciples open their ears to obey. They bend their knees to repent, and they also open their mouths to preach. Disciples open their mouths to preach. Now, it's helpful for us to notice how Jesus does not respond uh, to Peter's request. When Jesus makes a request, Simon says, okay, I'll do this. Simon's request is, depart from me, Lord. And notice what Jesus does not do. First, he doesn't disagree with Simon. He doesn't reach down and pat him on the head like a puppy and say, now, 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 you're not that bad. <laughs> it's not as bad as you think it is. Sin's really not such a big deal, and we can work around this, and let's just put it to the side for right now, and let's, not, let's think about happier things, Simon. That's not what he does. He doesn't disagree with him. He doesn't give him some sort of false notion about how sin isn't a big deal. But neither does Jesus follow Simon's logical conclusions to their logical end. He doesn't say, you know what, you're right. You're a terrible sinner. And quite frankly, Simon, I don't have time for you and people like you and what I'm doing. I'm, I'm on a mission here. I'm going out and sharing the good news of, of Christ and uh, of God and of his glory. And, and if you're palling around with me, people will think that we're associated. And quite frankly, I don't have time for that. He does not disagree with Simon in his evaluation of his sin, but neither does he make his sin an obstacle to service. What we see is that Jesus makes sinners into servants. Verse 10, he says, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. That's a grace word. That's a gospel word. As soon as Peter sees his sin, he wants to flee from Jesus. But as soon as Peter confesses his sin, Jesus is ready to make him a servant. That's how discipleship works. 
in God's economy. He doesn't enlist anyone who is not lowly and contrite of heart. The Lord gathers sinners to Himself through, through Jesus and His shed blood, and as they come confessing their sin, He fills their mouths with joy everlasting. And He puts within them a message to share with those sinners who have not yet heard, and so the gospel begins to spread like smallpox. It goes from personal connection to personal connection to personal connection from one sinner to another, and the gospel message goes out as sinners go to one another and say, I found the one who told me everything I ever did, the one who exposed every need I ever had, the one who showed me what I was really looking for, and come along and meet this one who told me. Isn't that the way it's always gone forward, from personal connection to personal connection. And this is what Jesus has in mind, that from now on, he says, Simon will be catching men. That word for catching is, is a rare form. It shows up only a handful of times in the New Testament. But it's actually a compound word. It's made of the Greek words for to catch or to capture and also life. To catch alive, that's what he's saying Peter's going to do. Up until this point, Peter, you have been using nets and boats and tackle to go out and catch fish, and once you caught them, they were as good as dinner. But now it's going to change, because now you're going to go with the gospel net, and you're going to spread it out, and the Lord is going to gather his people into himself, not for destruction, but for deliverance, for salvation that the Lord will be catching alive those that he's gathering through the gospel message. And he says, you're going to be catching men. And we're supposed to see here, I think, a parable of what Peter's ministry was going to look like. Three years into Peter's life from this point, you'll see him again toiling all night in vain. Toiling all night, this time to deny that he has anything to do with Jesus. And nobody believes him. They keep asking him, they keep pressing him, and he has to deny three times. He keeps coming up empty. He keeps wanting to tell people, I have nothing to do with him. And then at the end of John's gospel, we read of another miraculous catch of fish. We read of another private repentance. We read of another call to service. Peter, feed my lambs. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep, he says. And he's called again. And then on the day of Pentecost, the sovereign Lord fills Peter and the other apostles with power from on high. And Peter becomes the most unlikely person, spreading the gospel net in the most unlikely place. He becomes one who at one time had denied Jesus, preaching the gospel to men who had crucified him. Nobody would think that that would ever work. Everybody would stand on the shore, to continue the fishing metaphor, everybody would stand on the shore and think, Peter is out of his mind. And yet Acts chapter 2, verse 20, 41, tells us on the day of Pentecost, there were added to their number about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine? Suddenly they have a logistical problem on their hands. How are we going to baptize all of these people? Where will we get enough water? Even if we're sprinkling, where will we get enough water in the middle of Jerusalem where everybody is against this new sect that's rising up? How are we going to incorporate them into the church? What will we do with all of these new followers? How will we lead them? And their boats are sinking in a sense, and we see it all over again. All because the Lord made servants out of sinners, and he caused them to open their mouths and to catch men alive with the gospel. Now, folks, this is not controversial. I know some people, some scholars like to toy with the idea of, well, let's, let's discern uh, how much this call is really just to Simon and how much this call might apply to you. Is this something just for the apostles or is it for all Christians at all times and we can let them have their debates? And yes, indeed, this is a personal call. Jesus is, is speaking to Simon in his language. He's using terms that he knows. He's, he's couching it in, in this metaphor of catching men and, and Peter is right there with him. And this is a personal call, and yes, he was an apostle, and none of you are, and neither am I. But what we see is that the Lord is calling Peter to something that believers, faithful believers, have always been engaged in. You find it as far back as King David, Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Salvation, David proclaims. 
And then verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. And what happens when the Lord fills the mouths of his sinners who have been saved by his sovereign power? He says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That's how discipleship works. And so you let those scholars have their debates and you let those people determine how much and to what extent regular believers like you and me are called to go out with the gospel message and to catch men alive. You let them have their debates and if you will be a follower of Christ, you just preach the gospel. You just open your mouth wherever you are, wherever the Lord has you, maybe to your neighbors, maybe to your coworkers, maybe to your family, maybe to your children. I don't know who it is, but you just open your mouth because that's what disciples do. They speak of the Lord and of his mercy. And as they speak, the Lord is catching men alive. He's drawing them to himself. That's what disciples do. Now there's one more duty of discipleship in this passage, and I'm not intending to spend any time on it really at all, because if any of you disciples are following along with what we've seen already, you know where this is headed. The culmination uh, of the cost of all the other duties that we've seen thus far is the last aspect of discipleship. It's, it's what happens when you recognize what it's going to take for you to listen and obey the voice of Jesus above the voice of the world and your own sinful inclinations. The last duty of discipleship is the weight of understanding that as you draw near to Jesus, you will gain a greater view of the darkness of your heart. The last aspect of discipleship is that burden that you have when you realize that you have a message to preach and you stand in the midst of a world that does not want to listen. And there is a weight attached to all of these things. And the final duty of discipleship is what it takes to grab hold of this calling that we have, and to walk faithfully the way that the Lord leads us, because it is what we find in verse 11, that Jesus' disciples forsake the world. It says in verse 11, as we began, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And if you've got the King James, I think the language is better. It says, when they brought their ships to the shore, they forsook all and followed him. What is discipleship going to cost? It's going to cost everything. It's going to cost everything. And that's what the Lord demands of his disciples when they follow him. That those small demands get bigger. And maybe it's not as drastic for you as it was for these four disciples. Maybe the Lord isn't going to call you to drop your job and go and be some foreign missionary somewhere. He calls some people to do that. But maybe that's not the way it is for you. But he does call all of his people to be followers of him. And Phil Riken says, true discipleship is always costly because it means giving up what we want for us so that we can have what Jesus wants for us. Disciples forsake the world in order to follow him. And for many throughout the ages, that has meant giving up father and mother, brother and sister and house and home. We prayed for the church today in Bangladesh. And what would it mean if you were a follower of Jesus in Bangladesh and you went to your neighbors and you told them, no, 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 I'm, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Hindu, I'm, I'm a follower of the way. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. It would mean your life. It would mean giving up all that you know and all that you have. It would mean persecution and famine and sword and death. It would mean the reproach of men and the loss of all things. It would mean toil and hardship and struggle and strife. But for all that discipleship costs, those who forsake the world will gain Christ. We sing that hymn from time to time. Jesus and all in him is mine. Those who give up the world, forsake the world, forsake their sin to follow Christ will gain him. And his righteousness given. And his inheritance given as a gift to those who are his brothers and sisters. You know, the scripture calls Jesus our brother if we are his followers. Not just that we're his disciples, but that we become family. That to all who believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God with an inheritance. With the joy everlasting laid up for us in heaven where Christ is seated, where your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what you stand to gain. And all who follow him, the Lord promises to lead you home to himself. And so brothers and sisters, be followers of Jesus today. Open your ears to listen to him. 
and bend your knees in repentance and open your mouths to speak of his mercy and forsake the world to follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple. Please join me in prayer. O Lord our God, faithful King and glorious Lord, thank you for this word that you have given. We thank you for the promises of your gospel. That all those who have left father and mother and brother and sister and house and field to be your disciples will gain back much more and in the life to come a hundredfold. Yet, O oh Lord, we don't do it for the things we can gain, the gifts that you can give, but we, we do it to be counted as yours, to be your children, to be close to you, that you would draw us near to you even when we feel like we need to flee because of our sin. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the cross of Calvary which brings sinners near, cleanses us from every sin and, sin and every stain. We thank you that you have made a way that we should be drawn to you. You would raise us up at the last day so that we would be with you where you are, that we would have a home with you. Oh, make this our joy and lead us in the way of life everlasting as we follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a table which proclaims to us the righteousness of Christ given for sinners. The bread and the cup here symbolize Jesus' body and blood, broken and poured out. A real life lived in complete and total righteousness. A sinless life, the one that he gave to, to make atonement for the sins of many. He came and gave himself as a ransom. He didn't come to save himself. He didn't come to exalt himself, but he came so that he would raise us up. And this promise is for all those who trust in him and the sacrifice that he has made by his body and his blood, who believe in his resurrection power by the Holy Spirit, who are filled with that same Holy Spirit to come to him and trust and to receive life in his name through faith. This promise is not to those who are swift for the race, but for those who realize that they are lame and need to be carried by the Savior. And then he comes and he mends our broken wounds our broken bones and our, our wounds, and he strengthens weak knees and he lifts drooping shoulders so that we may run with him by his power and by his strength. This is the promise. It's a promise of preservation. That all those who are his, he will keep following. He will keep us in discipleship. He will make us his people. He will continue in faithfulness to complete the work that he has begun. That's the promise that we find here at this table, and it's for all those who have come and have believed on his name and trusted in his sacrifice. If you've not yet done that, if you've not trusted in Jesus and professed publicly your faith in him and been joined to a church where the sacrament is administered, we ask that you would not come. Allow the elements to pass. Consider whether the Lord is calling you to himself. But for all those who are his, this promise is for you. Come and eat and drink and rejoice in the Lord. We find in the Gospel of Mark that as Jesus was eating, eating with his disciples, he took bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. O glorious Lord of grace and mercy, saving grace to, uh, to redeem lost sinners to yourself, steadfast mercy to keep your covenant and your steadfast love forever. O Lord of condescending covenant grace, we thank you for the way which you draw us to yourself, and we thank you for this table which becomes a sign and seal of Christ's righteousness given to us and of the promise of your spirit to keep us walking with you. We pray that you would build us up in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as we look to him, where he is seated, as we await his return on that last day when he will call his church to himself, when we will be clothed in splendor and our bodies will be made new, when we will see him and we will be like him as he is. Oh Lord, keep us looking to those realities and the truths and the promises which you have proclaimed to us 
and keep us trusting in you until that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to them and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way, he took a cup and he gave it to them saying, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you.
Christ said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Drink, all of you. Please join me again in prayer. O Lord of mercy and grace, we pray that by your Spirit you would so keep us, that we would receive with joy the word of life, lay it up in our hearts by faith, and so be kept and preserved in every good work that we should walk with you until that day when we eat and drink together with you in the kingdom of God, we ask. Amen. Our hymn of response today in the Green Trinity Hymnal, number 381, Brethren, we have met to worship. Would you stand together as we sing number 381? And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, ye redeemed of the Lord, hear God's good word, his benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.